Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Charlie Iceman. Charlie is the lead author of the innovative and fascinating Tracks and Sign of Insects and Other Invertebrates. This book digs deep into the details of insect identification through the clues they leave behind, such as egg masses, cocoons, galls, burrows, leaf mines, and more. This initial treatment of leaf miners led him to his current 10-year obsession, learning about and documenting these specialist insects. Leaf miners are insects whose larvae live part of their lives in between the epidermal layer of leaves, each with fascinating life histories and survival strategies. There are thousands of leaf mining species of moths, flies, beetles, and sawflies. Despite being so prevalent, there was very little readily available information about them, that is, until Charlie turned his sights on them. Over the last decade, Charlie has turned himself into the foremost expert on North American leaf miners and created an 1,800-page guide to leaf miners, which is also referenced against their host plants, which makes it an extremely useful book. This is a truly fascinating subject. Leaf miners are literally everywhere, even in your own backyard, and they serve as a creative hook to open people's eyes to the incredible nature that's easily overlooked. I've included several fascinating photos in the show notes that you really just have to see to believe. In this episode, we discuss Charlie's background, the unique University of Vermont Field Naturalist Master's program that he completed, the challenges of breaking new ground and publishing his Tracks and Signs of Insects book, how he identified and described 50 previously undescribed leaf miner species, the process of documenting those discoveries, the process of rearing leaf miners at home to help identify them, and much more. Charlie also offers a few pearls of wisdom, including approaches to continuous learning, developing structure and deadlines for audacious goals like his 1,800-page leaf miner guide. Charlie also offers occasional webinars and online courses that I highly recommend, so be sure to check out his Bug Tracks blog or his website, charlieiceman.com, to see the upcoming schedule of events. Those are, of course, linked in the show notes as well. Without further delay, Charlie Iceman. Charlie, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. There's so many areas that we could jump into with your background. And one thing I was going to tell you in advance that I forgot to, so you're approximately my 12th or 13th interview for this podcast. And I think your name has come up at least half the time, if not more, with all with my other guests. So I've had a few entomologists and some bioblitz-oriented people, naturalists, and your name's always coming up. So I'm just really excited to have you here today. That's great to hear. <laughs> like I was starting to allude to, there are a bunch of places we could jump into. And I think I first encountered your work in the book, Tracks and Sign of Insects and Other Invertebrates, from roughly 10 years ago is when I bought it. That's when it came out, April 2010. <laughs> well, that would make sense then. And I just was so struck by it because it was so innovative and really high quality. I mean, it's all color, glossy pages, good descriptions, good photos. And it just really made me think, how did you, what was the genesis of that idea? It was so unique at the time. Yeah, well, it, it came about because there there wasn't anything like that. And uh, my friend Noah and I had just been generalist naturalists, um, but really into animal tracking all throughout college. And, and we were paying attention to plants and birds and mammals and bugs and whatever we could find. It's kind of a long story how this came about, but uh, in a nutshell, uh, Mark Elbrock is a a well-known animal tracker who who had first published through Stackpole Books a book called Bird Tracks and Sign, and then he did one that was Mammal Tracks and Sign, and he started conducting these tracker uh, evaluation and certification sessions all over North America. This is a, a certification program that started in South Africa, and he thought it was a, a great idea, and he brought it over here. And uh, Noah and I went to a couple of those sessions, and in the first one, he had a couple of kind of, it was mostly mammal tracks and sign we were being evaluated on, but there are a couple of kind of bonus questions that were invertebrate signs, and it became Clear. We at one point, um, a bunch of us were arguing about whether 
uh, this set of tracks was grasshopper tracks or beetle tracks. And it, it was pretty clear that no one, we were kind of at an edge that, that no one had really pursued very much. And, and so the, uh, there were the actual tra- like footprints in the dust kind of tracks. But meanwhile, we had been just as being generalist naturalists, we had been accumulating all these mysteries that there just was no book to look up. Like what are those little red shiny discs you find on the undersides of logs or those little uh, feathery etchings in the algae on tree, on like birch trees. I, I asked Mark, do you think you'll ever do an invertebrate tracks in sign book? And he said, this was at the first session I asked him that, and he said, maybe someday, but it would have to have a lot of authors. And then the, the next year, like a lot of co-authors, and, and so the next year I asked him the same question again. And he said, no, I think it's up to you. And I said, but I don't really know anything about invertebrate tracking. And he said, well, I didn't really know anything about skulls before I wrote my field guide to skulls, but there's nothing like having a deadline to make you learn what you need to know. And uh, it, it had never occurred to me that, well, number one, that I could write a book, but number two, in particular, a, a book about something I hardly knew anything about. Uh, but I I decided to take that challenge. And I, so I, after mulling it over for a few weeks, I, I wrote to the nature editor at Stackpole and, and pitched this book as another book in that series that Mark had started. And basically only because Mark was able to vouch for me as being a, a good naturalist um, did did it go forward. I mean, the editor ended up talking to Mark. He vouched for me. So because I couldn't, I didn't have anything in my resume that could demonstrate I know about insects at all. Mark had said, just give yourself a year and see what you can do. And I thought, well, there's a lot of bugs out there. So we, I, I gave myself a year and a half. And it was actually after I got the contract, Noah said, oh, gosh, I'd really like to help out on that. So I added him on as a co-author pretty early on into the process. And I just, so there would be no overlap in our efforts, basically. I said, why don't you cover all the marine life and the um, actual like tracks and trails in the dirt and all to do everything else <laughs> and, then we, and so uh, most of the chapters have contributions from both of us in them uh, and then there was one chapter that um just in my interactions with people on bugguide.net um i started uh, the word was getting out about this project a little bit and uh, john carlson who is both a medical doctor and an entomologist um just wrote to me and said hey do you want me to write a chapter about bites and stings and other signs on humans. <laughs> I said, sure, we're certainly not covering that very well. So he contributed most of that chapter. Well, I find it just a fascinating book. And there's so many different subjects covered from galls to leaf miners. And I'll definitely get into leaf miners a bit more here later. Egg encasements and you know other, just everything is covered in there. And I think the gardener would like it and the naturalist would like it. The thing that just struck me in your description of how the book came to be is the fact that you were never an author before. So that process, when you wrote to Stackpole and pitched the idea of this, hey, this could be another one in the series, was that sort of contingent on you producing a few chapters for them to review? Or when you got the contract, were they just like, go for it, here's your deadline? It was pretty much the latter. I mean, it was a very small advance they gave me, so they, they didn't have that much invested in it, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I was able to, since I was able to give them a, a really clear picture of what it would look like, because there wasn't this existing series that I could point to that it, it would be kind of modeled after that. But I think it was easy to see that this was a kind of a void in the natural history literature that needed to be filled. And you did it. Yeah, for sure. In the introduction of the book, there was a story that struck me and I think you were in the middle of uh, sort of a breakneck tour of the United States to get more photographs and some more hands-on experience. Um, and uh, you can fill me in on what the specifics were for days and miles and so forth. But I think you were at the co-author's, like a, a relative of the co-author's house. His mother's house. Yeah. yeah and, and you commented that five hours later, you hadn't left the driveway because there was just so much to see right there. Yeah. So we were basically... 
just at work doing field work or just wandering around our yards all, all throughout the time we were working on this book. We were just taking pictures of everything we saw. Noah was, before he burned each log in his wood stove, he would scour it to see if there were any interesting egg sacs on it that he needed to take pictures of. And then we took this 40-day road trip around the whole, basically the whole perimeter of the U.S., just to, to find things in other bioregions that we couldn't find in New England. And we went to the house he grew up in in Nashville. And yeah, we were about to go out on this canoe trip to find some Southern aquatic stuff. But we, we literally, yeah, we were like halfway down the driveway and a, a few, several hours later, his mom opened the door and was like, weren't you guys going on a canoe trip? And we were just like, we spent most of that time just under this one sugar maple, just flipping over the leaves and under each one, there would be some other crazy thing. Like I, I found a leaf hopper emerging from its skin. So that its shed skin was a sign it had left and that Noah found this really cool cocoon of one of those ribbed cocoon maker moths, a bucolatrix species that with this perfect, uh, they make this uh, palisade of silken pillars around the area where they're going to make their cocoon. So it's just this incredible structure and just, it really seemed like every single leaf we looked at had some other wonder waiting for us under it. Right. We did eventually make it out for a canoe trip. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, like, there's just so many interesting aspects of that because everything you find is sort of a mystery. You know, there's there's a bit of uh, uniqueness and novelty to all of it, and I could really see how once you start to see these things and you form that mental image, it uh, it just becomes a um, I don't know, is obsession too strong of a word? Or how, how did you feel during that period? No, I, I think that's a fair characterization. I, it was really important to have a deadline because you, I could still be working on it and I would have nothing to show for it. Because, I mean, I basically kept trying to add things in until until the last minute, and that, like after we had submitted the, the manuscript and then it had been copy edited. I was able to slip in a few more pictures and sentences but eventually the editor was like no, no we're done now um, and we thought I mean we maybe someday there will be a second edition where we can add a whole bunch of other stuff in but we said somewhere in the introduction that pretty much any chapter in the book could be expanded to its own whole book and that's I basically spent the past decade doing that with the leaf miners and I could spend another 10 years on gulls or who knows what else yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, I wanted to ask you, with the enormity of biodiversity that exists out there, how did you decide what to include and what not to include? We basically decided and anything that we found that uh, was identifiable was fair game. And if it was something, I mean, I, I'd been spending a lot of time on bug guides, seeing what other people were finding around the U.S. and Canada. And if there were recurring or, or just really distinctive things or really common things that either we were finding or other people were finding. It seemed like they were worth at least including in the text, if not in photos. And if there are some things that we weren't able to find, um, we end, there are something like 910 photographs in the book, I think, and about 80 of them were contributed from other people. Bug Guide is, uh, to this day, still a great resource for identifying invertebrates and leaf miners and, and other things. I still go to it very frequently. Last question on that book. What did you find surprising about the process? Like, you know, was there a lesson that you learned in sort of the mechanics of putting the material together and having it edited and so forth that stands out to this day? I'd never had, other than in papers I'd written for school, I, I hadn't well, even I'd had feedback on things I'd written, but I'd never had someone like copy edit 150,000 word document I'd created. So it was it was interesting just to learn about little and, and I can't I couldn't pull up any specifics right now, but they're just things that I would do regularly that were kind of poor sentence constructions that I've I kind of fixed after having a copy editor repeatedly point those things out. Um, it, it was a, just a really interesting process to go from 
I'm trying to think how the process started. If I even, I, mean, I think it was clear fairly early, early on what the general categories of tracks and signs were and, and the chapters took shape fairly early on. And so I started just dumping information into all these different computer files broken down by those sections and then reorganizing them in, in a way that someone might be able to look, have a mystery object and get to the identification. I see. But it was a very gratifying process for sure. At the beginning, you mentioned that you and your co-author both consider yourselves kind of generalist naturalists. I saw that you do have degrees in botany and wildlife and fisheries conservation and management. So you, you definitely have you know, a strong educational foundation. When you went into university, you know, what, what drove you into those fields? Like, did you have this interest as a child that led to this progression? Yeah, I, so I grew up uh, at the end of a dead end road surrounded by woods and I would just play outside all the time. Um, there was a pond just down the hill from our house. So I was looking at salamanders and frogs and flipping over rocks. And I, also my mother was an active volunteer with a local land trust and she was on our town's conservation commission. So I, I was exposed to a lot of nature and, and caring about living things um, that throughout my life. And it, when I went to UMass, I didn't know what I was going to major in. I thought I, I might try to major in music or or environmental science or something like that. So I, my first semester, I just kind of took a, a smattering of classes. And a, one of them was a, a wildlife class. And, and that just definitely clicked for me that that's what I wanted to focus on. Could you imagine at that stage how your career would have progressed? No, I've figured I would be a wildlife biologist of some sort. I wasn't thinking about insects or invertebrates much at all at that point. I, I had been into bugs as a little kid, um, but in college, I, I wasn't really. So yeah, I wouldn't have dreamed that I would be spending a decade uh, thinking so much about obscure insects. Remind me, I think I think you had also like a, a naturalist degree. There, there was a unique field of study that you had encountered. Yeah, well, so I, I majored in wildlife and fisheries conservation at UMass, and then I spent four years just doing seasonal field jobs, where I was sometimes working as a botanist, sometimes doing natural community classification kinds of work, some a, a lot of bird surveys. I was doing bird banding during the spring and fall migration, and then I, I did some breeding bird work, um, also uh, working with some rare salamanders, a lot of vernal pool work. Um, and then, yeah, eventually it, it's, I was avoiding a graduate school because I didn't want to focus on any one thing, basically. And But it, it got to a point where it was clear that I needed an advanced degree to kind of move forward in, in any direction. And so I, I, I had been aware of this program at the University of Vermont, the Field Naturalist Program. And I realized that that was a perfect fit because it's it's a master's program that it's a non-thesis program and you don't specialize in anything. It's, it's housed within the botany department, but it's, you do some geology, some botany, some, you basically take electives to fill in whatever gaps you feel like you have in your knowledge. But the core of the program is being what they call a, a general practitioner of natural science, basically. Um, so we did a lot of landscape level thinking and um, what they call the layer cake approach where you study a landscape looking through all the different layers from bedrock geology to surficial geology and hydrology and the human dimensions and the flora and fauna. The, the whole program uh, was just a perfect fit for what I needed. I feel like. And I, I did take one, the only formal entomological training I have is one undergraduate entomology class I took while I was in grad school. That sounds like an amazing program. It would be perfect for what my interest is. Like I, I just kind of want to sit back and be able to pick, pick and choose across, you know, all of natural sciences and, uh, and take whatever my interest of the day is. Um, now, obviously that would be what you went through much more structured <laughs> than, than that yeah. today. When you introduce yourself, do you still consider yourself a generalist or do you consider yourself a specialist of some sort? 
I do still think of myself as a generalist, but it's definitely true that I've specialized in an ever narrower group of, well, it's not exactly a narrow group of insects because leaf miners are hugely diverse, but yeah, I've definitely been, in my free time, I've been focusing on entomology for the past decade or plus. I'm I'm mostly interested in insects that are herbivorous, so it's very botanically oriented too, and I'm I'm still paying attention to the birds and mammals and other things. I just, I kind of always try to pursue what I know the least about. I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday, actually, and I was thinking about how I, what kind of first got me set on this path, and I was, uh, right after I decided to be a wildlife major in college, my mom bought me a um, just like a one day. Uh, Paul Resendez was this, or is, uh, but he's retired now, but he was doing these mammal tracking classes uh, around where I live in Western Mass. And I, I took a one day class that my mom got me into with one of the other instructors in his school, uh, John McCarter. We went out, just spent a day in the snow, um, mostly following fisher tracks, but we were um, any other animal we encountered, we would talk about what those tracks were too. And I, I was only dimly aware that fishers even existed. And I was just amazed at how we could just, like we basically stepped right out of the car and within a minute we were on the trail of this mysterious animal and just learning about its life by following its tracks. So for the next several winters, I would, if there was snow, I would head out the back door and get on a trail of the first animal I found and follow it until I came to something I knew less about. And I would just keep following that. And that's kind of how I learned about the lives of all the different mammals. And I think I've, I've kind of been doing that with the insects lately is I just go out and look for something that I've never seen before and try to learn what it is and all about its life cycle. Yeah, so basically it's a never-stop-learning approach to the natural world. Yeah. Maybe we've alluded to the leaf miners a few times now, so probably a good jumping-off point to talk a little bit about that. It's probably best if you describe your current publication and what it is and how you distribute it. It's just very unique all across the board. Sure. Well, first I'll explain what a leaf miner is. Leaf miners are insect larvae that spend at least part of their lives living and feeding inside of leaves. They tend to be highly host-specific, and they're all very specific in their habits in terms of the pattern of trail they leave in the leaf (laughs) and uh, what they do with their frass, their excrement, um, and where and how they pupate and spin a cocoon if they do spin a cocoon. Um, and, and they're so specific in all of this uh, to the extent that you can generally, just by knowing what the, the host plant is and looking at the trail, you can identify the insect to species from that information. If someone has gone to the trouble to create a guide to all the leaf mines that exist in North America, which is what I've spent the past decade doing. So, so before that, So basically the most comprehensive resource on North American leaf mines I had available to me was the 32-page chapter I'd written for my first book. Um, And shortly after the Tracks and Sign of Insects book was published, I got a small grant to go to Nantucket and do a a survey for, this was actually Noah and I, um, my my co-author on the first book, We, we got this grant to go do um, a, a survey for insects of Nantucket, but focusing on tracks and sign rather than traditional methods of surveying for insects, like you know netting and trapping, and mostly or entirely lethal methods that people use. But we were just thought it would be interesting to see how many species we could document just by looking at tracks and signs. And I knew that galls and leaf mines would be kind of the, the main things that we could really get to species because gall makers and leaf miners are so host specific that you can really get down to that level of specificity. A lot of the other insect signs are more, you, know, you can get to genus or maybe just a family from say, if you just find a cocoon or an egg mass or something like that. 
So anyway, we, we went out, spent four days in September of 2011, just taking pictures of all these things and collecting a few things. And we got back and I was um, trying to identify everything we'd found. And with the galls, I could pretty well figure out what things were by using existing resources. But with the leaf mines, I found that I, I knew what the family and often the genus was of a lot of the things we were finding. But then to really get down to species, I had to get into some pretty obscure literature. And I realized to, to really finish this survey of, I mean, just identify everything we'd found, I'd have to make a guide to all the leaf mines in North America. And I had just been through this process of a guide to all the tracks and signs of, of insects and other invertebrates in North America. So I, I had a an idea of how to go about that. So I, I just kind of sat down and started doing it. And I um, pretty early on, I, I pitched it to Stackpole, the publisher of my first book. And they said, oh, that seems a little like too esoteric. <laughs> probably, you probably want to go to an academic publisher for that. And so I did approach one academic publisher and they were interested, but the way they, well, number one, they, they don't really do contracts or anything until there's a finished manuscript. And number two, they wanted there to be a whole chapter on pest species and how to get rid of leaf miners, which wasn't really the angle I was going for. So I decided, well, maybe when I finish, I'll, I'll try that publisher or another publisher. But for now, I'll just keep collecting the information and see how it goes. And then I guess it was like three years ago now, I, I had just given a presentation about my work on leaf miners to a local entomological club. And someone came up to me at the end and was just really eager to have this guide and start working with it. And I realized that I, I mean, I'm finding new information all the time, even 10 years in. And I realized it, it could just go on forever if I don't give myself some kind of deadline. So I she told me about Patreon, which I knew a little bit about, but it's this crowdfunding platform that lets you have patrons who are, um, you know, funding you just a little, like a few dollars a month, say, and they get different, depending on the level. You give various rewards or, you know, various products that they get. So um, I decided... I think I started just like a month after that, but I said, okay, I'll put this. I, I thought about how long it would take me to, to get each section of the book into some kind of presentable form. And so I divided it into, I gave myself a goal of June, 2019 to finish kind of the first edition of this thing, just as an ebook, a self-published ebook in PDFs. So that was an 18-month window, starting with January 2018, and I just gave myself these 18 deadlines, but this is what I'm going to have done by this point. I think at that time, I basically had um, everything was, I didn't have any pictures chosen, but I had the, the basic text except for the introduction. So for the first month, I just wrote the introduction and put all the pictures into that, and then for the rest all of the subsequent months, it was just going through and choosing the pictures and inserting those and then making some last minute updates. But I was able to to meet that goal. And it was, yeah, I think about 1800 pages when I finished that. And I, so I had people subscribe to it in different ways. And some people were doing it through Patreon and some people, I gave the option to just pay a lump sum up front. Um, and then when I realized that I'm I didn't feel like I want to stop working on leaf miners just when I finished it. So I decided I gave myself a six month break and then I started up a second edition. I've been going through and revising that. And I decided to just everyone who had bought the first edition, I'm just giving them uh, at no additional cost the, the updates. And I'll, I'll probably just I don't know when, <laughs> when I'll stop doing that, but I am uh, maybe a third of the way through the second edition at this point. I finally pulled the trigger and purchased this just uh, just a few weeks ago, and I'm glad I finally did. I admit, just personally, I was aware of leaf miners from your book. 
I never actually spent any time looking for them, though, until this last summer. I started up a personal project. So I live in San Jose, California, and I have a pretty small plot of land and pretty much nothing when we moved in, uh, nothing was native in our plot. We've replaced a few things and tried to make it a little bit more friendly to native wildlife. And I thought, well, okay, with the pandemic and being stuck at home more, I'll see how many species of animals, including insects and invertebrates, I could find and ideally photograph as many. So I, you know, I had the thought, well, maybe I could get 365 different species photographed in my own yard within the next year. And that's what finally led me to really get involved with iNaturalist. And I found your project there with leaf miners. And, and now I, uh, I actually searched them out. I haven't found too many yet in my own yard, maybe a half dozen or so. But I finally purchased your book. It's great. I love it. I love the layout. It's easy to follow despite being you know close to 2,000 pages. Uh, so I just I can't thank you enough for that. And what I was going to say beyond that is when I've shown leaf mines to other people who maybe aren't interested in nature, they seem like a really good introductory hook for people. Uh, they're like, wow, an insect, like part of their life cycle is inside of a leaf? I had no idea. You give a lot of talks and, and you host you know, webinars and seminars and things like that. And usually I think it seems like the attendees, at least what's online, are insect clubs, entomology people, uh, people that already have an interest. Do you use leaf miners or some of these other insect behaviors as a hook to, to maybe get people not so interested engaged? I'm just curious how that's worked for you. A few years ago, a, a garden club asked me to give a talk. I forget how specific they were in their request as to what the talk would be about, but I ended up putting together a talk called Native Plants as Insect Habitat. I just focused on mostly plants that are in my yard and plants that showed up in my yard without me even having to plant them there. It was just all I did was when we bought our house, there was just a lawn and an arborvitae hedge and nothing else. And we just didn't mow the lawn. And we, we planted some fruit and nut trees and uh, made vegetable gardens. But in the interstitial spaces, we just mostly have let whatever wanted to happen, happen. And I've been mowing paths and then I'll mow the whole meadow once or twice a year, maybe. In this talk, I go through just a bunch of common plants, many of which people just think of as weeds, um, and I show all, all the neat bugs uh, and interesting natural history I've found right in my own yard. And this includes some species new to science and some immature stages of, of species that had names before, but no one really knew what they did for a living before, what, what their larvae looked like. And then just some things that are, are well known to entomologists, but not to the general public. And it's been really fun to I've given that talk a number of times and various audiences and uh, people always seem to be blown away by just all this life that's right under our noses. It helps to have really good close-ups of these tiny things that, that are hard to appreciate at life size. But yeah, and that's, I guess I didn't ex explain exactly what the format of my Leaf Miner book is, but the first several hundred pages is overviews of the different groups of leaf mining insects. And it shows some pictures of larvae, but um, mainly the illustrations there are what all the adults of these different leaf mining groups look like. So there are leaf mining beetles and flies and sawflies, which are wasp-like insects, and then moths. There are uh, 40 different families of moths that have at least some leaf miners in them. And then the whole rest of the book is you look up whatever plant genus your leaf mine is on, and there's a dichotomous key that takes you through all the possibilities on that plant. Approximately how many species does your book reference? Over 2,000. I'm not sure exactly, but there are so in those four insect orders that there are about just shy of 40 species of sawflies, the Hymenoptera, there are a little over 200 species of beetles that are leaf miners. There are maybe about a thousand flies and uh, over 1,200 moths. Yeah, that's well over 2,000. This is probably not an answerable question, 
But how many, did you mention that you were able to describe some species from your own yard that had previously been undescribed in the literature? If you had to guess, are there hundreds more, thousands more waiting to be described? Definitely hundreds. Maybe not thousands, but definitely many hundreds. And that's probably true across the globe, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. And definitely, I mean, probably where you are there. I mean, right here in Massachusetts, which is a pretty well-studied area, I've had, well, let's see, in my yard, there have been at least five species with either the the type specimen or one of the the paratypes that, that the species description was based on have come from my yard. And probably at least a dozen species, like within walking distance of my house, uh, collected type specimens. And in California or anywhere in, in the Southwest, there's just, yeah, orders of magnitude more stuff waiting to be discovered. A few years ago, the last time I went to California was when there, there was a super bloom happening in the Enza Borrego Desert. My wife and I drove out in late February, early March, and we stopped in some canyons along the way in uh, Arizona and New Mexico, and we found leaf miners like on evergreen plants in the, it was basically still winter there, but in, in the desert, there were a fair amount of leaf miners, not out in the open blazing sun so much, but if you got into little uh, more sheltered places or on the undersides of leaves, there were more, uh, but almost everything we found was unknown to science. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I guess that's not all that surprising, especially in the Southwest, because those riparian corridors and some of the the canyons, um, you know, along and in the Sky Islands are just so productive. And I used to live in that area. I wish I knew about leaf miners when I lived there. I guess I have to go back. But you you, you mentioned looking for them in your own yard. And I, I... I also had had a similar pandemic project in my yard where I um, decided to challenge myself to see how many leaf miners I could find in my yard. And also um, a new project I'm starting to work on is a a guide to all the sawfly larvae in North America, not just the 40 leaf mining ones, but the thousand other ones, except only about two or 300 actually have known larvae. But so I was looking for both of those things in my yard. And I was on my blog, I was reporting on everything I was finding every few days. And I ended up finding something like 212 species of leaf miners in my yard. So I'm sure, I'm sure there's more than half a dozen in your yard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now now that I sort of have that search image implanted in my head, uh, they're becoming easier to find. I notice when I'm out on hikes now, I see them more often as well, but yeah, you really do have to look. Yeah. It starts with looking. You had over 200 leaf mining species just in your own yard. That's crazy. I'm I'm wondering if I'm going to get to my 365 total species goal in my yard. But granted, uh, from what I read on your blog, it sounds like you have uh, quite the habitat in uh, in your space. The species that were previously undocumented, it sounds like you end up having to rear the species to really confirm what it is and validate um, do all the research, look at it, you know, in fine detail. What does that process look like? How do you actually rear the species and and get the scientific community to agree that, Hey, this is something, you know, something new that that we need to describe. So the rearing process is basically on on the simplest level. It's just collecting a leaf and sticking it in a container so that it won't dry out and waiting to see what pops out. And with some, it really is that simple. Others, uh, like the, the sawflies and some of the beetles, well, really, there are a few examples in each order that, that uh, need to have soil to burrow into. I, I mix up sand and peat moss and just add a little bit of water so, so things don't dry out and they'll burrow into it. And, and most of I have little baby food jars that I just fill with like an inch of soil and, and let things burrow into it. And um, many of the things that do that just have one generation per year and the adults won't emerge until the following spring. And so for those, I put all the jars in a little dorm fridge I have in the basement and put it, turn it to just above freezing and, 
I put everything in there for a few months for the winter and forget about it. And then in the spring, I take everything out. And uh, there will be some things that emerge just within a day or two after I take them out of the fridge. And some it'll be up to like four months after I take things out of the fridge. Uh, but I take the lids off the jars and I put the open jars in Ziploc bags so I can more easily see bugs that have popped out of the soil and are trying to disperse. You must monitor them on a daily basis then to see what's happening? Yeah, so all of the vials of, of bugs that aren't that don't need to burrow in soil, I just keep in these gallon Ziploc bags. And over the course of the growing season, I might accumulate like... 10 gallons or so of, of vials of leaf miners. And I just have them on shelves in my office. And then every evening I'll take them all off the shelves and dump them out and just quickly go through to see if there's anything needing attending to. And either if it's drying out or getting too wet, or if in fact an adult bug has emerged. Yeah. So that's the rearing process. And then identifying and describing new species. Uh, fortunately, I get to outsource most of that. <laughs> so there's a leaf mining fly specialist um, at the Canadian National Collection of Insects, Owen Lonsdale. I've been sending all of my agromyzid flies to him. And he, most of the species that I've been able to help describe have been agromyzid flies just because he's really productive and has been he sees the value in having all of these specimens that have known natural history. A lot of entomologists are working with museum specimens that are just bugs that are randomly swept from plants or just caught in traps or whatever. And we know what they look like, but don't know anything about them. So he's um, to some extent prioritized working on my specimens. And we've now published the, the, our fourth paper together is will be published sometime in the next couple of weeks. And we've described, forget, over, over 50 species together. And then, then there have been a few, like two new sawfly species. Um, I give all my sawflies to Dave Smith, who's the sawfly specialist at the Smithsonian. And he's been working on North America, well, sawflies all over the world since the 60s. So he knows them really well. Yeah, there, there are a few people like that that are scattered around the world that are specialists in one or two groups of insects that include leaf miners that I'll send all of my specimens to those people. And that, so the only ones where I, and so mostly I do the describing of the leaf mines and all the, the natural history information and my collaborator will do the dirty work of, it, it largely comes down to the genitalia. So Owen does these amazingly detailed stippled drawings of the male genitalia of these flies that he has to dissolve their abdomens in, I think, lactic acid. And then obviously he's under a high power microscope and looking at these things and uh, reproducing them. Um, but so the only ones where I actually took the lead in describing the adult insects were uh, two moths that... Um, I um, sent the specimens to Don Davis, who is kind of Dave Smith's equivalent at the Smithsonian, who, who works on these tiny moths. And I, I asked him, if, if you just, there was this one species that had, had taken me five years to work out its life cycle. And I knew that he has been accumulating um, undescribed species in this uh, one moth family, the Gracilariidae, for uh, 50 years or so, and has been saving them all, most of them up to do this one big monograph where everything gets described at once. And but I, because I'd invested so much time in figuring out this one moth, I asked him, like, if I just do everything on this paper, like describe, I'll, I'll do an basically a 19th century description of the the moth, where that's just the, the external features. Will you just deal with the genitalia, and, so we can get a name on this moth? And he said, sure. And then. The other one that we described together, I had sent him a whole box of this one species of moth from Arizona, and it turned out to be a genus that he had just recently revised that genus, so it made it easier to describe one more new species in that genus. Given that there's still so much to learn, and I feel a little bit motivated by you saying that there's so much out here in the West in particular, 
do amateurs like myself, do we have a chance to actually be able to successfully rear things that we find? Is that something you would even recommend to, to people who are interested in trying? For sure. And I've actually, as I'm going through my book and putting together the second edition, I've been also putting together this spreadsheet of all the mystery leaf mines out there. So I'm including all the known unknowns in my keys to the mines that have been found and all, all the different plants out there. Um, and there's already, I'm only, yeah, as I said, a third of the way through the book or so, there's already 200 or so um, mysteries to be pursued on, on here. And on the spreadsheet, I'm including what month of the year the mines have been found and what state and, and more generally what kind of quadrant of the continent people are finding them on. So I'm hoping people will use that as a guide to go look for things that that need more work done on them. And it's, I have both on my website and in my book, I go through in detail my rearing techniques. Things other than moths are a lot easier to deal with once you have the adult insect because they can just be preserved in alcohol. And then a lot of specialists prefer just receiving specimens that way. And then they can deal with properly mounting and pinning them. Moths are, are tricky because really the best way to ship them is they get pinned with these tiny, so these, these moths are only maybe two to four millimeters long as adults, so they're really tiny things, and just the standard uh, insect pins would just obliterate them, so there are these special pins called minutin pins that are used to pin them, and then there are these special tiny spreading boards that people use to spread them and then they get double mounted so that my Newton pin gets stuck into a little piece of foam that then has a normal insect pin stuck through it and you move the specimens around by picking up the bigger pin. The best way to ship tiny moths without damaging them is in a box, I mean, pinned in foam with these double mounted specimens in a box. But they, you can, you know, if you rear a tiny moth, you can try just you know, once you've killed it in whatever way by freezing it or something, you can just gently fold it in a tissue paper and put it in some kind of hard container and hope that it doesn't rattle around too much and lose all its scales. It's kind of iffy, but it's I've gotten plenty of good specimens that way. So it's it's worth giving. If, if you find one of my mystery mines, I definitely encourage people to <laughs> do their best to rear them and give a shot at it shipping them. Yeah, maybe that's something I'll give a shot here this uh, in the coming year. One thing I did want to talk about a little bit too is some of the maybe more interesting natural histories of leaf miners. Like they're all really fascinating to me and you started to get in a little bit to how they come to be, but I realized that there must just be some very specific adaptations to insert the egg inside of a leaf and maybe other steps such as burrowing into soil. So if if you had to highlight one or two of the more interesting species you've encountered, what might those be and, and what makes them so interesting? Well, I'll start with that one that took me five years to figure out. Um, this is one that I first found that survey of uh, Nantucket gall makers and leaf miners. I found a single mine on a, a species of viburnum called arrowwood. Though I didn't mention this before, but I've continued this survey of galls and leaf mines of Nantucket and have gone back every year since then. So this year was the 10th year of that survey and I've found new things every time. But every year, uh, my wife and I learned a little bit more about this moth as we came back to look for more. But what we eventually pieced together is that in July, or so, the adult moth lays an egg on the, the surface of a leaf, and then the larva bores into the leaf from that egg and makes this little squiggly mine, a, a narrow linear mine that probably within a few days, it bumps into the midrib of the leaf, and it goes down the midrib and down the leaf stalk and into the stem. By the end of the summer, it's out of the leaf and it's in the stem, and often it's so deep in the stem that there's no external evidence of it. Sometimes there is a, a mine that you can see on the stem, but uh, often not. And then it overwinters in the stem. The leaves have all fallen off, so you can't even see which plants that the initial initially had leaf mines on them. They continue mining for a few months the following spring, and then in June, 
they cut out this little semicircular flap in the bark at the end of the mine and spin their cocoon under that. So once we had figured that out, we were able to walk around looking for these little flaps in the bark on Arrowwoods. And we collected like 30 of those in maybe five hours of looking and we were able to rear three of these adult moths. Yeah, basically a year-long life cycle. <laughs> it's crazy to me that they they go through all that. And some of, in addition to the um, these three adult moths, we got several different species of parasitoid wasps that emerged from the cocoons. At least one of those kinds of wasps, just based on what's known of, of species in that group of wasps, they actually the wasp mother will insert her eggs into the eggs of the host insect. And so this, these wasp larvae were lying dormant inside the moth larvae for that entire year while they were mining in the leaf and then in the leaf stalk and then in the stem and then overwintering and then spinning their cocoon before they finally kicked into gear and devoured the moth larvae from within. So, okay, let me make sure I have this. So the, the leaf miner starts off in the leaf and that's when the parasitoid wasp inserted the eggs, which stayed right. dormant inside the larva as it fattened up and waited until the next year before the, the parasitoid eggs kind of woke up and did their thing. Yeah, I mean, they've probably, yeah, I'm not actually sure at what point the parasitoid egg hatches, but it, it either hatches early on or not till the end, but it, it's either an egg or a very young larva until the, the host caterpillar has spun its cocoon and started to pupate and then suddenly just in a matter of days it grows really fast and eats its host so for these leaf mines one thing i realized that you know people maybe who haven't seen it before are, are thinking about you hit on the fact they can be squiggly linear blotchy can be spiral there's all sorts of different interesting shapes so i'll make sure that i get some good photos that go along with the show notes so that everyone can see that and for this specific viburnum species that you found I imagine you probably wrote it up on your blog at some point. Like, do you have a something that I could point listeners at that describe it or show some of these photos? Yeah, it's. Um, I wrote one that's called a hard one moth, <laughs> and it's it goes through the the story of how its life cycle was pieced together. I'll definitely link to that. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to reading it myself. I, I'd heard or read somewhere a little bit about this find of yours previously, but I don't think I've read that blog post. So it's something to add to my list. You know, one thing I didn't touch on is your iNaturalist project. So as we've discussed, I've been using Bug Guide for 12 years or so. And I've, I've definitely, that's been my go-to place for my own pictures I take of mystery bugs. Over the past few years, I've warmed, I've learned more about iNaturalist and warmed to it. I, I was put off at first because a lot of things that get posted there, I, I guess people just follow whatever the AI tells them it is, and they label it as such. And so that if you look at a, a map of, say, some gull wasp you'll, that's a, that only lives in California, you'll see dots all over the continent because sort of vaguely similar gulls have all been caused the same, called the same thing. And it's even with leaf miners, I was finding things not even like the right order of insect, just all kinds of crazy IDs. And so I created this project called Leaf Miners of North America, where people can just dump all of their pictures of leaf mines, whether they have any idea what they are or not. And so there's this one central place that I can go to review pictures and ID them to, to the best of my ability, rather than scouring. As I said, there are 40 different families of leaf mining moths, and they're like eight or more families of leaf mining flies and they're all the beetles and soft flies. So it's, it would be a huge project to be keeping tabs on all of those things independently and looking for new submissions. So the ideal submission to your project, from what I recall, it's best to know the host plant. I think it requires something related to the host plant. Yeah, you're, it's, it's possible to bypass that or just say plants if you don't know what it is. But yeah, ideally, if you want to know what species of leaf miner it is, you want to know what at least what plant genus it's on. And then the, the ideal submission would have clear photos of both sides of the leaf, even if you don't think there's any information on the underside of the leaf, there's, it's still worth seeing that. And then if you can get a backlit photo, like by holding the leaf up to the sun, or if you have a way of getting artificial light behind it 
that really helps sometimes in seeing the frass pattern or what the appearance of the actual larva inside, if there is a larva inside. And does the exit hole help in any way? Like are there unique attributes to how the larva exits or the adult, I guess it, it, maybe it depends. Sometimes it's an adult that exits. Sometimes it's still the larva. Exactly. Yeah. So, and so in some cases, like with some of the moths, there will be the, the moth's pupil skin poking out of the leaf when the adult moth emerges. And sometimes it's the larva chewing this little crescent shaped slit as it emerges. There are some species that will always emerge on the upper leaf surface. Some will always emerge on the lower leaf surface. And then that being able to recognize the, the exit hole of a parasitoid wasp versus the leaf miner will keep you from being led astray. Like if, if you're trying to use the, the keys in the book and you see a question like, does this species pupate in the leaf or exit to pupate? And if you don't know the difference between a parasitoid wasp exit hole and a moth larva exit hole, you might be led to believe that this was a species that exited to pupate, but actually the parasitoid killed it before it pupated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's been really neat. I, I've learned so much about the geographic distributions of leaf miners from this project that it's only been there, I guess, two years now. But just like 10 minutes before I started talking to you, I checked I mean, that project and someone who has my book had just posted a species that I've never even seen a photograph of the mine before, but he identified it to species using my book. And it's the westernmost record of this species ever, <laughs> not just, I mean, as far as I know, it's the first record of it on the internet. And it's, as far as the literature is concerned, it's, it expands its known range west. So there's, even in December in Minnesota, people are finding new information about leaf That's Yeah, <laughs> it's it's amazing what iNaturalist is doing, and you know, like you, it took me a while to warm up to it, but not because uh, not because of the accuracy of the data. Just I found it kind of difficult to use in the early days. But yeah, now I'm definitely an addict. So, a couple of wrap up questions. You know, first of all, just it, you seem so incredibly productive because you're very active on these projects, uh, on the iNaturalist project, you know, webinars, your blog, writing these books. How do you, how do you manage your time? Like, how do you produce so much? <laughs> I'm just curious, do you have any secrets that, that perhaps I could learn from? I think, as you said earlier, just obsession is, <laughs> is a good ingredient for productivity. Yeah, I, if I'm feeling inspired, I just kind of keep going like when I was writing the I don't do this anymore but when I was writing the first book I the times I was most productive I found was in the middle of the night when there are no other distractions and I kept staying up later and later until I was staying up till like seven in the morning and sleeping till three in the afternoon but now I, I have reasonable bedtime but I um you know, if, if I'm feeling inspired to work on the Leaf Miner book, I'll just spend hours working on that. And then if I'm, I'll, I'll get sick of it and then I'll just, now it's time to go play outside and, <laughs> you know, go do something else. But whatever I'm, I'm feeling inspired to do, I do that. And with the, as far as keeping up on the iNaturalist projects, I kind of, while I'm waiting for something to download or waiting for a program to up, open or something, I'll just, I'm able to whip through IDs pretty quickly. So I kind of, I don't necessarily sit there for hours working on iNaturalist, but I'm able to squeeze it in here and there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good time filler. Small, small chunks here and there. That sort of makes sense. One of my goals with this show is to help people kind of ascend up the rung of interest in nature. So, you know, perhaps you start off not knowing something like a leaf miner exists, then you learn about it and you start to care about how it fits into the broader scale. Have you found anything particularly effective to help people ascend that sort of hierarchy of, of interest? Anything in terms of a, a practice or a resource or a... Could be anything a specific natural history story or a resource or a photo or something you can show someone that they can go find on their own? What occurred to me just now was that just putting in your own dirt time as, as far as you can get with figuring something out before you go asking uh, an expert or whoever you have access to to, to ask about it or, or go to a, a class or a workshop and learn about it. I, the, the more you've, time you've spent 
just struggling with identifying something or, or investigating a mystery on your own, the, the more uh, you'll be able to have kind of a context for whatever that expert has to, to offer you or to, just to pick up more nuances on minor details. So that's, yeah, I think all through my education, that, that's how I've been able to learn things. Like when I took that one entomology class in, in grad school, I had already, just by using like the Peterson field guide to insects and the Audubon field guide to insects and trying, I think a bug guide I wasn't really aware of yet, but just whatever books I had available to me, I had tried to identify things. And so I, I was already aware of all the different orders of insects. And so when a, a lot of the students were just learning that basic information, I was able to, I already had a framework. And so I was kind of able to pick up on some of the more obscure <laughs> information that the professor had to offer. That makes a lot of sense because in the, in the pathway of discovery, you branch out in so many other areas and you learn about all the sort of related tangential things. So I think that's a, a good recommendation. And, and one thing, I'm also a birder and there's a lot of debate about some of these AI tools that are, they're really, really good with birds. Like birds are not nearly as complex as insects and you can get good identifications automatically with good photos but you don't kind of, you don't really learn how, and when you're in the field, if you're just relying on that, it's it's impossible to really identify anything that you're seeing. So it's an interesting dilemma that we have with technology. Yeah, and even about books and other guides, like when I was first learning birds, the, the Peterson birding by ear tape was or CD or whatever it was was a great resource that I learned a lot of the my first bird songs and calls from but then there were some that weren't on those and the, I just had to like there was this one song that I would wake up every morning hearing this song and for months I kept hearing this bird and I could never find it and then I finally in like September I, I was able to find this it was a Louisiana water thrush at the edge of the pond behind my parents' house. And after I'd been just struggling with that for, for months and actually seeing it with my own eyes, like, aha, that is the bird that's making that sound. I never forgot that. So just being able to discover things like that for yourself, there's no substitute for that. Like versus if I had heard someone saying, this is the sound the Louisiana water thrush makes, it probably wouldn't have stuck in my head right away. So to wrap things up, you touched on a couple projects you have underway, like the Sawfly Guide and second edition of your Leaf Miner Guide. Any other projects you, you want to highlight? Uh, well, those are taking up a lot of my time. But right at this uh, moment, I am putting together an online class. It's called Bugs in Winter. And it's about how uh, insects and other arthropods make it through the winter. And that is being offered through Biodiversity University, which is housed in the, the North Branch Nature Center in Montpelier, Vermont. As the pandemic was getting underway, they were figuring out how to do natural history outreach, as I'm sure schools all over the country have been doing. But so they've started, they've put together this format of online courses where there are four units, each one that has a pre-recorded lecture slideshow kind of and then alternating that with that there are live meetings with the instructor and all the participants and when everyone gets the first lecture recording they also get a field challenge to go go out and try to find something or do something and, and then they all get together and discuss that so that's been fun to put together because there's no, again there's there's kind of no resource for that right now. Like if you wanted to learn about what all the bugs are up to in the winter, that I don't know of a book that just tells you that really. So I've been drawing a lot from just my own experiences over the past decade, but also bits and pieces from books. And when is that? You said it's coming soon? Yes, that starts, I think January 6th is the first class or when, when the first recording is made available which it does not yet exist, but it, well, I've, <laughs> I've made the slideshow. I haven't actually made the recording of it yet. Are, are people able to sign up after the fact then if it's, if it's recordings? Yeah, there, there won't be the live meeting part of it, but people are still able to just buy the class and do it at their own pace. Um, it'll be on their website indefinitely. So it, it was limited to 20 people, but that 
filled up and they had made a second session. And I, as of a few days ago, there were 33 people. So there should be a few slots left. <laughs> at this point. Well, I'll see if I can get this out and published before the sixth. So if anyone listening wants to join in, they'll, they'll have that opportunity. Um, anything else that you want to highlight, uh, how people can reach you, your website, any other projects? You can find everything that I'm up to on my website, which is charlieisman.com. Uh, a lot of people often spell either Charlie or Eisman wrong. <laughs> so it's Charlie with an E-Y and Eisman is E-I-S-E-M-A-N. Um, but I also have my blog, Bug Tracks, which is a a separate URL, but I have them as different tabs on the same thing. So if you just search for bug tracks, you'll probably find it. And then you can have different tabs for what all my publications and my tips on rearing insects and whatever else is on there. And I also have this got on Twitter a year or so ago, and I've been um, I have an events page or a schedule on my website, but I also, as new things come up, I've been putting them out on Twitter. I've been tweeting them on Twitter. Right as the, the project of listing all the leaf miners in my yard started winding down, I decided to start just every day. I've tweeted one different species from my yard, not just leaf miners, but any species of flora and fauna and potentially fungi. And I just, so I'm up to just 60 or so now, but we'll see how long I keep going with that. <laughs> just a, another way of exploring the biodiversity in a very small area. Right. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. All right. Well, Charlie, I do thank you for being so generous with your time. It was really an enjoyable discussion. I, I hope that you enjoyed it as well and that uh, people who are interested in leaf miners and sawflies and whatever your next projects turn out to be down the road have now found you and will be able to contribute. So thank you again. Thank you. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.